Hello, everyone. Uh, good to be with you. I'm uh, joined by two of my colleagues. Uh, if you're a listener to our podcast, Inside Economics, you, these uh, my colleagues are familiar to you. We've got Chris Dorides. Chris is the Deputy Chief Economist. Hi, Chris. How are you? Doing well. Hi, Mark. Good, good. Uh, I didn't expect any, any, any less than that. Good is good. And uh, Ryan? Ryan, Ryan always complains, but uh, so how are you doing? Ryan is the Director of Real-Time Economics. I'm good, Mark. No You're complaints. You're good, too? Okay. Yeah, no complaints. No complaints. Kids are in school, or are they out? No, they're in school. Yep. They're in school. Okay, good thing. No snow day. Good deal. Um, I, this is the way this is going to work. I'm going to present uh, for about a half hour, uh, give you a sense of our uh, baseline outlook for the U.S. economy. I'm going to be focused on the near term 2022. I'll talk a bit about the risks. Uh, risks are, there's upside and downside risks, but I'm going to focus mostly entirely on the downside. I think that's appropriate. Uh, show a few slides along the way, and uh, when uh, I'm done, then uh, we're going to turn to you and your questions. So please fire away uh, in the Q&A section of the, uh, of the Zoom. We really want to hear from you. And uh, Chris, Ryan, and myself will uh, talk about the questions that you pose in, in kind of a conversational form format, kind of like a podcast format. And that reminds me, uh, we are going to put this uh, webinar uh, up uh, as a bonus podcast uh, in Inside Economics. And so you'll be able to get it through uh, the normal podcast channels, uh, Apple, iTunes, uh, YouTube, all, all those uh, uh, mediums. So uh, this is going to be available uh, through a podcast, Inside Economics. Um, okay, uh, let me uh, dive right in. And um, Chris, you got your hand up. Is there a reason why you're Yeah, hand? before you do. Oh, okay. yeah, we're getting some uh, feedback from the audience. They're saying you're coming in a little faint. If you could speak up oh, okay. uh, a bit. So. Okay, let me move in closer to this. I think that's better. Yeah. High-tech yeah, microphone. <laughs> uh, okay, let me do this. Am I coming in better at all? Mm -hmm. You are to me. So. Okay, all right. Well, audience, let us know if we're not. Okay. Okay, yes. so let me let me dive right in, and uh, I think this uh, first chart nicely encapsulates uh, where we've been and where we're headed. You can see history forecast. Forecast is uh, highlighted by the shaded part of the chart. This is just GDP, real uh, GDP trillions of twenty twelve dollars. You can see the uh, the, the recession uh, when the pandemic hit back in early twenty twenty, almost two years ago. Uh, GDP fell by ten percent. Uh, peak to trough, uh, I think almost on the nose. And for context, if you go, you have to go. If you go back to the financial crisis uh, back a little over a decade ago, which I, you know, obviously was very severe, uh, GDP peak to trough fell four uh, percent. So this gives you sense of magnitude. In terms of jobs, we lost 22 million jobs in March, April of 2020. Uh, in terms of unemployment, the unemployment rate topped out pretty close to 15%. It was probably higher that appropriately measured, but officially measured 15%. And that was back in April. Uh, we we've come a long way back. Uh, you can see that in the chart. We're not quite back to, in terms of GDP, pre-pandemic trend. So we're not quite back there yet, but we're well on our way. Key to this uh, recovery uh, has been policy, monetary fiscal policy, highly supportive. The Fed uh of course, implemented a number of credit facilities early on in the pandemic, 
to insulate the financial system from the chaos in the economy. That worked out very well. Uh, quantitative easing, bringing down long-term interest rates, and of course, putting short-term rates, the funds rate, the federal funds rate at the zero lower bound, and that's where we are today. Uh, fiscal policymakers also kicked in with a lot of support. Uh, the CARES Act, that was back in March of 2020, all the way through the American Rescue Plan, ARP, that's March of 2021. You towed it all up. The support uh, comes to about $5 trillion. That's about 25% of GDP. And again, for a bit of context, uh, in the financial crisis, all of the fiscal support during the downturn in, in the subsequent uh, recovery came to about 10% of GDP. If you look globally, uh, the uh, countries that come closest to the U.S. in providing fiscal support are the British and the Japanese, uh, but that they, they provide about 12 uh, su support that's equal to about 12, 13% of their GDP. So about half of support provided by uh, U.S. policymakers. And of course, the vaccines uh, have been critical to uh, uh, to uh, getting uh, down the road here with the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic is still on, is still doing a, a lot of damage, uh, making lots of people sick and hurting the economy, juicing up inflation. Uh, but uh, we're in a much better place today than we were uh, two years ago. You can see where I think we're headed. Uh, and I'd say this is a sanguine outlook. Again, this is the baseline outlook. This is the outlook in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes, uh, so kind of right down the fairway. And I'd say it's a, a positive outlook. Uh, it's based on three key assumptions. Uh, there are many, but I'll, I'll just quickly focus on three. First, the pandemic. I'm assuming uh, that while we uh, will suffer more waves, obviously we're now in the middle of the Omicron wave, uh, I'm assuming that will pass by as we make our way toward a month from now or two months from now. Uh, and there probably will be additional waves of the pandemic, but I'm assuming that each wave of the pandemic is less disruptive to the healthcare system and to the economy than the previous wave. So Omicron, you know, obviously doing damage, but will do less damage than Delta did, which hit us back in the summer fall, which did less damage than the wave that hit us back a year ago. You may remember back December of last year, excuse me, December of 2020, employment actually declined because of a wave that we were suffering uh, that winter. But uh, I'm a, key assumption number one is the pandemic uh, is, is going to steadily recede uh, going forward. Uh, and we'll come back to that in the context of the risk. Second assumption uh, around fiscal policy, you can see I am still assuming that we're going to get some form of the Build Back Better agenda through Congress. As you know, uh, uh, the infrastructure part of Build Back Better, that did get through uh, into law. That's the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package over 10 years, $550 billion additional money uh, uh, that uh, was provided as part of the agreement. Uh, that will help the economy beginning late this year, but mostly in 23, 24, and 25. But that's embedded in here. And then I am also assuming that some form of this of the Build Back Better social uh, agenda will get through. I'll have to say at this point, uh, the probabilities of that feel like they're falling pretty quickly. Uh, we've not gotten to a place yet where uh, we're going. We've taken it out of the uh, out of the outlook. It's still in the January baseline outlook, but we're getting pretty close to that. And you know, we'll revisit in a couple in a, in a few weeks when we start doing the February forecast. And there's a real possibility that uh, we will assume that this doesn't not get through in, into law. 
at at this point, it, it's not you know really a game changer for the economy. It'll ding growth a bit in 2022 compared to what I have here. Uh, but uh, you know the the trajectory of the economy of the recovery will will stay the same. And I you know I do think build back better will help long term growth, uh, and it will benefit low middle income households. So there are some uh, downsides to not getting it done. But at the end of the day, uh, the picture here isn't going to change a lot if we don't get build back better through uh, into law. Finally, uh, the third assumption is monetary policy. As you can see, the Fed has already begun to normalize monetary policy. They've now uh, started to wind down their quantitative easing, their bond buying, uh, so-called tapering QE. That's on track to come to an end uh, as of March of this year. And then uh, we have uh, now four uh, 25 basis point, quarter percentage point increases in the funds rate in calendar year 2022. I have the, we have the first funds rate increase in May, then one following in July, then September, and then December. Uh, uh, markets, financial markets are anticipating that as soon as the quantitative easing is over in March, that we'll get the first rate hike immediately thereafter. Uh, I, I think they're going to take a little bit longer than that, uh, in, in part because they're going to want to digest well, what kind of damage Omicron did to the economy before they actually start to raise rates. But I wouldn't argue with anybody if they said uh, March as opposed to May. I think uh, a pretty close call, but I think four rate increases. And then they'll steadily raise rates uh, till they achieve what I would call the equilibrium funds rate, the funds rate that would be consistent with an economy in the long run, with an economy at full employment growing at its potential with inflation at target. And uh, that's about two and a half percent. One final thing about the outlook, that's long-term interest rates, 10-year yields. Uh, you, you, I'm sure you've noticed that they're, they're up over the last couple, three weeks as bond investors digest the more aggressive uh, 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 normalization of monetary policy. Uh, I expect the 10-year Treasury yield to be hovering around 2.5% by the end of this year and uh, by mid-decade uh, in the long run. Uh, that the uh, 10-year yield will be about 4%, which is very consistent with, I think, uh, nominal potential GDP growth in the economy. And in the long run, I'm not going to go into this unless you want to talk about it in the Q&A. In the long run, again, with economy, full employment, at growing up potential with inflation at, at the Fed's target, uh, the 10-year yield should equal nominal potential growth. And that's about 4%. And I think that's that's where we're headed. So in the long run, mid-decade, 4% 10-year yield, 2.5% uh, funds rate. One more uh, point about the baseline outlook, uh, and that is uh, I do expect the pandemic to recede, but I do think there are going to be longer-term consequences of the pandemic. And uh, one of the most, you know, they're, they're, some are pretty obvious, increased online use, uh, less business travel. But I think the one that is going to be most important in terms of uh, the macro economy uh, and different sectors of the economy, regions, is remote work. I, I, it, this is here to stay, and it's going to have a big impact on regional economic performance, real estate markets, state and local government finances, um, you know, lots of different things, uh, labor market dynamics, lots of different things. And you can see how a big a deal this is. Uh, this Here, this uh, it shows uh, net out migration in the second chart, net out migration from urban cores uh, in the nation's 400 plus metropolitan statistical areas to suburbs and exurbs. It's monthly data. 
It's based on credit files. So we get a 10% sample of all the credit files in the country from Bureau Equifax every month. Uh, it's anonymized. It's a consumer level anonymized, but we can see addresses. And so we can see address changes. And based on that data, we can calculate this information here. This is monthly, 12 month moving sum to put it on an annualized basis back to 07 when the data starts. The last data point here is for November. And you can see the shaded part of the, of the chart is the pandemic. So you can see prior, just prior to the pandemic, net out migration from urban cores to suburbs and exurbs was just under 300K. It peaked at close to 600K this past summer in June or July. It started to come in a little bit, but it remains very elevated. Uh, and you can also see uh, the 10 metropolitan areas in, 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 the, in the chart, these are the 10 areas where the increase in net out migration during the pandemic has been most significant. I, I think no surprise, but it's really kind of interesting, you know, very interesting, at least to me, a, a, a big urban centers in the Northeast corridor from Boston to New York to Philly to DC, Philly being, of course, our hometown, Chicago, uh, and then over on the West Coast, LA, San Francisco, the Bay Area, Seattle, uh, Miami also a bit of a surprise to me that uh, we've seen a lot of an increase in net out migration there. These folks from the Northeast, they're going into the South, the Southeast in particular, and all over into Texas, Austin. So MSAs that are really benefiting would be like Atlanta and Charlotte and Tampa, Orlando, Austin, Dallas. And then the folks on the West Coast, they're going to the Mountain West. So going from North to South, Boise, Salt Lake, uh, Vegas, Phoenix, Tucson, and again all the way over into Texas, and 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 I and, you know this we're gonna you know, is this gonna come in more as offices ultimately reopen? You know we're not back to work yet, but uh, in, in offices, but you know we will be at some point I think in 2022, so we'll see this come in, but we're we're not coming back. Uh, this is a, a I think a, a dynamic that's a, a feature of the future. And again, all kinds of implications that uh, that we can talk about. But this is a, a key aspect of our baseline economic outlook when you take a look, particularly regionally or in different sectors, particularly in housing markets or commercial real estate markets. Okay, that's the baseline. Let me now turn to the uh, risks. And as I mentioned at the top of the talk, I am there are, there are upside risks, and we can talk about that. Uh, but I'm going to focus on the downside because I think the downside risks still are predominant. And, you know, to get uh, one's mind around this is pretty difficult. There's a lot of different risks and cross currents. And so we've put together this risk matrix to help uh, kind of uh, get a sense of, of, of the risks. And just to describe the matrix, the x-axis, the horizontal axis is the severity of that risk or shock. Uh, that's kind of like a present value of economic loss if that shock were to occur. The y-axis, the vertical axis, is the probability or the likelihood of that risk or shock. And obviously, this is very subjective. So, for example, if you go to the northeast part of the chart, pandemic intensifies. So, you know, the economy, jobs, unemployment, inflation, everything is still tethered to the pandemic. Uh, and if the pandemic doesn't stick to our script, if it doesn't recede, if the next wave that we get isn't less disruptive than the previous wave, then obviously that's a, a risk to our outlook, uh, and, and it's a problem. It's, it's going to change the contours of the outlook, and still number one issue. If I go to the, if you go to the southeast part of the chart, social and political unrest, well, you know, the, the, it feels like we're uh, everyone's uh, very tense uh, given the uh, 2020 election. We're still uh, some folks are still trying to litigate that. Uh, a lot of a lot of tension out there, uh, and. Um, that could boil over. I mean, we kind of got a taste of that back in the summer of 2020. 
uh, this uh, there's a there's a risk that you know that, that we see something like that, but uh, but even more in, more severe and intense, and it does more damage. Low probability event, but if that were to happen, I would uh, proffer that that has the potential for doing very serious uh, damage to the economy. If you go to the northwest part of the matrix, forbearance cliff, this goes to the fact that the government provided a lot of support to household debtors, folks with uh, with mortgages from Fannie, Freddie, FHA, VA. They had a more uh, a foreclosure moratorium, and there was a uh, moratorium on payments uh, that started to wind down for most people. Uh, student loan borrowers, uh, they still are getting uh, forbearance on on payments. So they don't need to make payments, I believe. Chris will correct me if I'm wrong, but something like May at this point that was extended to May. Uh, th these supports are coming off. You know, the rental eviction moratorium that's done, the foreclosure moratorium is winding down, the student loan debt moratorium that'll end in May. And uh, there is the potential that uh, you know uh, the, these households will have some difficulty making payments. We could see some increase in default and foreclosure. Uh, and that could do some damage. You'll, you see that that's a, has a very high probability of happening. That's going to happen. But uh, at this point, the cliff has gotten a lot smaller. The number of households that are in financial trouble much smaller. <clears throat> and so I think the macroeconomic consequences are relatively low. You'll see in the southwest part of the chart, climate change. You know, I, I don't at this point, it's hard to envision a scenario, particularly in the horizon that we're talking about here over the next year or two that climate, something around climate risk would really do a lot of damage to the economy. It doesn't feel like we're going to get a carbon tax or a carbon border adjustment tax or some other uh, transition risk. Uh, it doesn't feel at all likely. And physical risk, you know, like our hurricanes and floods, I mean, we're going to have that and more of that than we've had in the past because of climate change. But it doesn't, it, that does not feel like that rises to a level where it's going to do significant macroeconomic damage. But nonetheless, I think it should be on the matrix, and that will, I think, become more prevalent as we move forward. If we're doing this a few years down the road and have the matrix, uh, it might be in a different spot. So this kind of gives you a sense of it. I am now going to uh, end the conversation by focusing on two of these risks. The first is around uh, asset prices. You can see I have financial market sell-off pretty high here as a probability. That's correction in the stock market. You can see crypto crash house price declines. I think asset markets are juiced, and I'll talk about that for, uh, for, uh, for a bit. And then I'm also going to talk about what I think is top of mind for, for many folks is uh, the high inflation. Of course, we've got the C CPI, Consumer Price Index, today. And for the, uh, for the month of December, consumer price inflation year over year is 7%. That's the highest that's been since 1982. And there's obviously a lot of angst about where that's headed and how fast uh, uh, that the inflation will moderate. So let's just focus on those two risks. First is uh, inflation. Oh, excuse me. I was going to do uh, I was going to do uh, asset prices first. So let me do asset prices first, and then I'll come back to inflation. First is uh, asset prices. Uh, they're they're uh, juiced. Uh, their valuations are very very high. You know, pick your your measure. Go to the price earnings multiple for the S&P 500 in the equity market, look at credit spreads uh, in the bond market, um, and look at house prices to, to uh, ratios to, to rents, effective rents, or to income or construction costs. Uh, valuations are very high. Uh, that is, I think, nicely uh, uh, represented here uh, across all asset markets. Uh, this is kind of sort of like an economy-wide price earnings multiple. 
in the numerator of this ratio is the value of all of the assets owned by U.S. households. This is data from the Federal Reserve's financial accounts. And in the denominator, we have GDP. So, you know, uh, the price is in the numerator and in the denominator, GDP, which is the source of economic value driving those asset prices. So GDP is profits, GDP is income. Those are the things that drive stock prices or commercial real estate values or uh, housing values. And you can see I'm showing you data all the way back to 19, early 1950s, as far as the data goes. It's relatively stable in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's been, the P multiple has been rising pretty consistently since then, which is consistent with a steady decline in interest rates. And so uh, valuation should be high. Uh, interest rates are very low, and until very recently, they were at record lows. I mean, the 10-year Treasury yield, I believe, was below 1% about a year ago. So, you know, very, very low interest rates. And of course, the funds rate's at zero. Uh, so you would expect uh, valuations to be high, but if, uh, it feels like they're going well beyond that at this point. Take a look at the most recent period during the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, the multiple assets to GDP was about six times, which by the way, was already pretty high. It was higher than it was back in the housing, the peak of the housing bubble back in the, in the mid 2000s. You can see, you know, six times is, is pretty high. But uh, as of the fourth quarter of 2021, my calculation, uh, it's close to seven and a half times. So uh, this just gives you a real sense that market tradition can kind of feel it. You know, there's froth uh, uh, and speculation creeping in uh, in the markets, SPACs and meme stocks and very aggressive uh, IPOs, initial public offerings in the equity market. You can feel it in the crypto market. I mean, crypto, you know, arguably is uh, largely just a medium for for speculation. There are some use cases, but they're really on the margin. And most of what's going on in these markets are, you know, uh, uh, in, uh, households uh, speculating on uh, price increases. And then, of course, in the housing market, there are signs of, of froth creeping in. Uh, and you get a sense of that here. Uh, this shows the relationship between the investor share of home sales. So these this is the share of home sales that are going to investors, corporate entities, entities with LLC on the deed, or, or uh, uh, owners that own a significant number of uh, single-family property. I'm relating that to visually to uh, house price growth. That's the CoreLogic house price series, repeat sales series. That's the green bar. Investor share is the blue line, left-hand scale. House prices is the right-hand scale. And you can see uh, that uh, the as investor share has picked up here over the past year, uh, we've seen how uh, we've seen house price growth really accelerate and. Now, uh, 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 one of the key reasons why we're seeing uh, out of bounds house price growth of about 20%. So uh, my point is that asset markets uh, broadly are very highly valued, overvalued, arguably frothy, bordering on speculative. And I think we should start talking about the potential for bubbles if prices continue to rise at this pace for, for much longer. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the context of rising interest rates. So if you buy into my outlook for the 10-year Treasury yield or the federal fund rate target, uh, and also growth is going to slow, you know, by definition, I mean, we've been barreling along here and we're coming into full employment and, you know, uh, which I expect towards the end of the year, then, um, you know, we, we will have to see slower growth one way or the other. And the, and the result of all this is that asset markets are vulnerable to, to corrections. Now, 
you know, uh, I think at this point, if asset markets corrected, it, it would hurt, it would sting, it might take a bite out of growth. I don't think it would be existential to the economic recovery. You know, uh, the leverage backing these assets, like margin debt in the equity market or mortgage debt in the housing market, still pretty low. It doesn't feel like, you know, we're at a place yet where if asset prices go down and we start seeing delinquencies default on, on the debt that's backing those assets, that it would be a financial system problem. But, you know, I won't say that six months from now or 12 months from now if asset prices continue to appreciate like they have. So this is something uh, to watch. This is a, you know, a significant downside risk. Finally, I do want to end by uh, just uh, talking about inflation uh, and, you know, quickly uh, just to lay out first the baseline. Here's uh, our, uh, I think, uh, you know, just nicely shows like the first chart I showed you with, in terms of GDP, where we think inflation is headed. This is consumer price inflation, CPI, percent change year ago. I'm showing you data from Q1 2019 through the end of 24. This is our January baseline economic outlook. Again, you can see where history ends and forecast begins. That's the shaded part of the of the chart. And you uh, motivating, you know, this you can see it's a pretty sanguine, just like with GDP and jobs and unemployment, it's a pretty sanguine baseline, right? We've got inflation 7%-ish. Now this is quarterly data, so it doesn't quite get there uh, on, a, on a quarterly basis. But, you know, 7% on a monthly basis through December, and I have it coming in, getting back to the Fed's target, uh, by early 2023, the, the Fed's target at this point on the on the CPI is probably somewhere around two and a quarter percent on the core PCE. That's the preferred measure the Fed looks at. It's, it's closer to two. CPI obviously is going to be higher than than PCE because of differences in the way things are measured. But I have it coming into uh, the Fed's target. In fact, you'll even notice in 2023 a little bit of uh, inflation that's actually a little bit below target. That's just a model result, but it makes a point that it's, it's gonna come in. The logic behind this is several fold. Most importantly, is that uh, the reason is that inflation has surged to the degree it has is because of the supply side impact of the pandemic, particularly in my mind, the Delta variant of the pandemic. That's where the surprise came in. Delta was a big surprise. No one anticipated that back on the other side of the vaccines in the summer of 2021, but Delta came on, uh, creamed us, and actually did a lot more damage to Asia, Southeast Asia, where a lot of global supply chains begin. And uh, that's why we've seen the, the mess in the supply chains, shortages for all kinds of goods, vehicles being the poster child for all of this, shortages, uh, low inventory, and skyrocketing prices. Even in the December CPI, a big chunk of the increase in CPI in December was vehicle prices, using new, new vehicle prices. Also scrambled labor markets, you know, people got sick or fearful of going to work because they were gonna get sick. So that caused wage growth to accelerate, particularly for low wage workers and frontline industries. And that got exacerbated the inflation dynamics. And then energy markets, you know, scrambled by the pandemic. You know, we saw demand start to pick up as the global economy reopened, the supply side of the market slow to respond, which is not atypical. And the result is we've seen higher energy prices. But, you know, if I'm right about the pandemic uh, receding, uh, as I as I articulated early on, it's, again, it's an assumption that happens. I do expect uh, the supply side problems to work themselves out. Supply chains, labor markets, energy markets we will start to see that come in. And then on top of that, because of these high prices and the profits that businesses are making, you know, corporate profits, corporate profit margins are near record highs. Uh, that they, they view this as an opportunity. They're, they're investing very aggressively in expanding capacity. A lot of that capacity, I think, is going to come online 12 months from now, 18 months from now, 24 months from now. 
and we could even see some some price weakness and that's what you're seeing here and on the good side of the economy and that's what you're seeing here uh in uh, 2023 uh and just to reinforce the point about the pandemic this kind of decompose this does decompose the growth in consumer price inflation year-over-year -year cpi growth uh into uh, uh, the uh, contributions from the pandemic through three different sources. The first is energy supply and demand. Uh, that's the red part of the bar uh, reopening. So this is another aspect of the pandemic. It crushed pricing in industries that were on the front lines, hotels, rental cars, airfares, that kind of thing. Now that the economy is reopened, uh, uh, those businesses and those industries have simply been normalizing prices, bringing prices back up to where they were pre-pandemic. And that adds to inflation, the inflationary pressures. That's the green part of the bar. And then finally, the supply chain bottlenecks. That's the blue part. And that, as I said earlier, is largely vehicle prices. So you can see in December, that's the last data point, that a big part of the 7% inflation, you know, close to 4.5% of the 7%, is directly related to the pandemic. Take 7% minus 4.5%, you know, that's... that's uh, that's 2.5%. That's exactly where you know, you'd expect uh, consumer price inflation to be. So it's very driven by, by the pandemic. And then finally, uh, very important to, uh, to continue to watch is inflation expectations. So far, so good. There different ways of measuring expectations. My favorite is looking into uh, the bond market uh, because this is uh, where investors are putting, uh, putting the money where their mouth is. Uh, and you can see Two different measures, a five-year, five-year forwards. This is teased out of 10-year treasury yields. That's the blue line. And five-year break-evens, that's the blue line. This is data, month, daily data back to 2020. I think this goes through a couple days ago. And you can see uh, they've, they've normalized. I mean, if the Federal Reserve were looking at this, they'd say this is exactly where I'd want these things to be. So, so far, so good. So the baseline, I, you know, I, I feel pretty good about it. I, I you know, feel confident inflation is going to moderate uh, of, but of course it's all predicated back to the to the pandemic how, uh, how the next waves of the pandemic unfold and if omicron's worse than anticipated or the next wave is worse than anticipated does more scrambling then we're not going to quite get the picture that i'm hoping for but i think if everything kind of sticks to script with the pandemic inflation still moderate but obviously boatload of risk around that and uh, something uh, to consider uh, going forward Okay, I covered a lot of ground and I took exactly 30 minutes on the nose. I, I know uh, Ryan and Chris were timing me, uh, but I, I nailed it, I believe. Uh, and we're, we are going to turn to the Q&A part of the conversation. But before I do that, let me uh, turn to the two of you and maybe Ryan, you first. Is there anything I said that you, uh, you take, I don't know if you would disagree with, but you'd like to add more color to or just to reinforce a point or, you know, color a point? Yeah, I think you and I have a slightly different risk matrix. I would put a Fed policy error much higher and having a much larger economic cost because what they're going to do this time around is not just raise interest rates, but at the same time, they're going to be reducing the size of their balance sheet. So they're going to go from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. And we don't have a lot of precedents for when these two channels of monetary policy are are tightening at the same time, maybe the impact on financial markets. So, you know, again, to your point about, you know, a market sell-off, but also the economic, you know, drag from the Fed normalizing could be a little bit more than uh, what we're anticipating. So you can see where I have Fed reserve misstep. That mm -hmm. seems pretty high to me. Where, where would you put it on the risk matrix? Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd increase the odds. Oh, you'd increase think, the odds. Oh, no, yeah. I think it's very highly li likely that 
you know, we're oh, yeah, barreling it's, towards it's a pause. See, I have like a 50% probability that they're going to misstep. Half, they won't have. Mm -hmm. Do you think they are going to misstep? They're going to misstep. And, and so what does that mean to misstep? They're going to tighten too aggressively. Uh, okay. They're going to disrupt financial markets. Uh, I don't think they're going to cause a recession, but, you know, I think the, you know, you, you always use the landing, the plane on the tarmac. Like, yeah. We're going to come in and we're going to be bouncing around for, you know, a couple of years as they normalize. Yeah, it's interesting. You think they tighten I, in March? Yeah, they're, they're going in March. Oh, you think they're going to tighten in March? I think and, later this month, we get the fourth quarter employment cost index, which is our preferred measure of, of wages. Uh, and it's going to be very, very strong. And Powell has, Fed Chair Powell has pointed out that the ECI in the third quarter kind of contributed to their hawkish pivot. So you're going to get another data point, And I think that's going to lead them to uh, raise in, in March. And do you have, would you uh, concur with the four rate hikes in 2022? Yeah. No, I agree with you. Okay. Four. Hmm? Yeah. You're just, you're just pulling it over. You're, just, you're like uh, investors. The markets are anticipating a March hike. You're saying that feels more right to you at this point in time. At this point, yep. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I'd argue too strong. We're not off by a lot. You know, we're yeah. talking a couple of months. Yeah. Right. Well, someone asked me about this yesterday. A client uh, asked about this particular uh, kind of scenario where the Fed does misstep. It steps on the brakes too hard and we get more of a boom bust. And I think that's a reasonable scenario. I don't think it's a baseline, but I think there is a probability to that. And I think the the, the one thing I pointed out, I know, Ryan, you, you may not like this uh, answer, oh, but I said, or this this observation, I said that keep your eye on the shape of the yield curve. <laughs> the difference between the 10-year yield and the funds rate or the 10-year mm -hmm. yield and the two-year yield, two-year yield is obviously very sensitive to expectations around future monetary policy in the direction of the funds rate. And every time uh, we've had a recession, uh, I think since World War II, or certainly since 19, the 1960 recession, it's been preceded by an inversion where the funds rate or the two-year have risen above the 10-year. And that's, that's, that's very unusual, and that's an inversion. In fact, we did get an inverted yield curve prior to the pandemic in 2020. So That's an asterisk. Uh, okay. Uh, well, there really? was, no, so there was right. no reason for a recession in 2020. All right. All right. It took a pandemic. Really? I'm not so sure. No reason? You, you, you may recall, it, I think there were other reasons to be worried about 2020 and recession. But nonetheless, mm -hmm. I think you would concur, though, you would agree yeah. that it's not a bad indicator to watch because that's an indication that the markets are beginning to think the Fed's misstepping. Correct. Right? And I mean that could limit or tie their hands on how aggressively or how high they can increase interest rates. They're not going to invert the yield curve because, you know, yeah. they don't want to risk, you know, sending a signal that the, uh, they're, they are going to miss that. So. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think there's a, a number of fed or maybe not a number, but there's, there's been a fed member or a couple that have actually highlighted the funds rate or the uh, yield curve as a, something that they don't want to do. That, that would be a correct. signal that they've done too much. I think it was Raphael yeah. Bostic, the Atlanta mm -hmm. fed. There's a, there's a few. I mean, if you look at the minutes, yeah. they talk about the yield curve a lot in the December um, uh, meeting in their minutes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, Chris, uh, anything you want to add color to, take umbrage with? It's a good no umbrage, word. I... Umbrage means disagreement. <laughs> Strong disagreement. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with the uh, general contours of the forecast here. I guess from my perspective, always looking at the risks, I, I would underscore the pandemic effects. So if I had to adjust this chart here, I would actually put the pandemic intensifies. I would increase odds of that. Just there's going to be another wave 
uh, to my mind. And it doesn't even have to be a significant wave given the one slide you skipped, which I think is, is a good one, uh, just in terms of the labor supply impacts of people being out sick. And that's, this that one. I, I, skipped I worry it about I this. I wanted to be within 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I knew you were going to give me grief I, if I went over, so I skipped this chart. Yeah. <laughs> so this is what I would uh, underscore in terms of near-term risk. Certainly, that there could very well be uh, additional waves. They don't even have to be as severe as Omicron to cause some disruptions. And with that, I worry about inflation lasting or persisting a bit longer than what we have in the forecast. So in, in, that's certainly what just, I keep my eye on. And just to explain this, the, the blue line, this is monthly data, September of 2020 through December of, of uh, 21. The blue line is the change in employment, uh, and that's the left-hand scale. And this is non-farm payroll employment. The red line is the number of COVID cases uh, during the survey week that the BLS conducts to calculate employment. And, you know, it's pretty obvious, right? Uh, in fact, the, the relationship doesn't look quite as strong more recently, but I suspect that's because the, the data, the employment data hasn't been revised yet. <laughs> so once it gets revised, it probably will look more right. But the point is, if you kind of do a forecast here, what's COVID cases going to be when the Fed, when the BLS does the survey next week for the January employment number? It's going to be this week. What? Oh, it's this. Oh, yeah, this week. It's what's going to be this week? 700 well, they're over 700,000 yeah yeah well okay you can do the mental kind of uh arithmetic here I, 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 that would imply a negative number right for the month of january certainly um do you, so that's a possibility so i think it's you're possible right, yeah i think that is a very significant threat significant risk okay um so i uh just reiterate to the audience if you have questions uh, please pose them we're going to start tackling them now We've got a queue, but uh, please fire away. And if we don't get to all of them, we will respond in writing. Uh, you can do that through the Q&A button uh, in, in Zoom. So please, please feel free. So, so Chris or Ryan, I, I know you've been monitoring the, the questions. Uh, where should we go next? Should we stick um, with inflation? Sure. Yeah, why not? All right. So there's one question, whether or not the rate hikes that we have on our baseline is going to cause inflation to be weaker in 2022 and 2023? Well, I'll answer it, and then I'll let you guys answer it. The way I would answer that is, yeah, that's critical to our inflation outlook. That, you know, I did argue strongly that the surge in inflation we've observed to date is related directly to the pandemic and the supply-side disruptions that the pandemic has created to supply chains, labor markets in particular. But, you know, as you move towards the end of the year, if we can kind of get the growth that we're expecting, GDP, jobs, unemployment is going to continue to come in, labor force is going to continue to increase, participation is going to continue to increase, we're going to come into full employment by the end of the year going into next. And, you know, if you're growing strongly and blow past full employment, then you got an inflation problem. That, that's a fundamental inflation problem. That's you know, that's not pandemic. That's, you know, classic business cycle. I'm past full employment. Labor markets are stressed kind of inflation. And that's where the Fed really will step on the brakes. But we're saying, look, to avoid that, to avoid blowing past full employment a year from now and getting, you know, fundamental acceleration in wages and, and prices, 
the Fed needs to slow things down. And the way to do that is to raise rates. So we have four quarter point rate hikes, a full percentage point on the funds rate in this year. And of course, that leads to higher, and of course, no QE. And in fact, another point to make is the QE, the bond buying is gonna end in March, not too there long after. And I'm curious what you think, Ryan. I think they begin QT, quantitative tightening, that is allow the balance sheet, the treasuries and mortgage securities on their balance sheet to wind down. And that will add upward pressure to long-term rates. We got rates moving higher. And I think the economy is pretty sensitive to rates. We talked about it in the context of asset prices. You know, we're going to see weaker asset prices and that will slow growth so that as you get to the end of the year going to the next, the economy is growing at a rate that's more consistent with its potential and unemployment stabilizes it. And that's why, Ryan, did you hear what I just said? That that seems pretty complicated. That's like that's mm -hmm. difficult to even say. Think about actually doing, doing it. that, mm -hmm. you know, in the fog of of the pandemic, you know, and everything else that's going on. And these are these are only the things that we know about. What about the things that we don't know about that are certainly going to happen between now and the end of the year? So Ryan is saying really high probability the Fed gets this wrong, you know, one way or the other. And, you know, press is too hard or not hard enough. And, you know, we, we have a bigger problem down the road. So, uh, yes, the, the rate increases are critical to getting the economy to land on the tarmac in full employment without inflation becoming a, a fundamental problem. So I think um, you just talked yourself into raising the probability of a Fed policy error well you know um so you're I'm very sympathetic to it i mm -hmm. but when i say error it kind of feels like to me crash landing you know recession and i i don't think i want to go there i don't think that's going to happen at least not at this point i don't think they'll, they'll be able to navigate that but that's what i mean by kind of sort of what i mean by a misstep but maybe maybe you mean something less than that and if that's mm -hmm. the case then you know more sympathetic to it Anything to add to what I just said about that in response to that question, Ryan or Chris? No? No, I think you okay. covered it. Yeah, fair uh, enough. Okay. I mean, the only thing I would add is that inflation would moderate this year without Fed rate hikes uh, because the supply chain issues are going to start easing. And that's two percentage points of disinflation that will get wrung out of the CPI over you know this year and next. So, but you're right. Like, 2023, if they didn't start raising rates soon, then we're going to have an inflation problem down the road. Yeah, okay, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, okay. That might okay. be a nice segue to this, uh, this next question here, uh, which touches on supply chains. Um, the question is, what is the base case for real GDP growth for 2022 and 2023? Maybe you can just summarize those numbers. And then is there any meaningful impact to supply chain disruptions from China's recent closure of factories due to Omicron? Yeah, good. Yeah, generally, uh, I don't give specific numbers because I figure folks have it in front of them. But okay. um, that's fair not fair. I, I mean, that's just that's that's not right because many people don't. So to be precise, uh, real GDP growth in 2021. Of course, we haven't gotten Q4 data yet, but it's, so it's a bit of a forecast. It's going to come in around five and a half percent. I think it's five point six percent to be exactly precise. In Calendar year 2022, we're expecting GDP growth of 4.1%. And then in calendar year 2023, something, uh, I think it's 2.7, 2.8%, somewhere between two and a half and three. Um, at, this, at this point in time, I think the economy's potential growth, and I don't think this is long-run potential growth, but I think it's current potential growth, 
is about two and a half percent. So that gives you a sense of we're going to continue to see declines in unemployment and increase in labor force participation over the next uh, 12, 18, 24 months. So the unemployment rate is three, nine as of December. I have it bottoming out in the low threes, somewhere three, two, three, three by December of this year, and then kind of stabilizing. Uh, I particip- we have participation rates rising. Uh, so participation is 61.8% as of December. And it's somewhere between 62 and a half and 63 by late 2022 going into 23. I also have, we also have a bit of a pickup in working age population growth. Working age population growth has been very depressed. You know, a lot of that's retirees, uh, boomers retiring early, but it's also more importantly, less foreign immigration. So if you go back pre-Trump, it was about a million per annum in immigrants. President Trump changed policy, and of course, the pandemic crushed immigration. Our estimate is that in calendar year 2021, we probably got quarter million in immigrants. I expect that to start coming back, and that provides a little bit of juice from working age population growth. So you add all of that up, that means we get to an economy that's at full employment by the end of this year, going into 23, uh, and growing very close to its potential uh, potential rate of growth. That's kind of the contours. Now, in terms of Omicron, that has affected the quarterly path. So uh, before Omicron, so if you go back to our December forecast, which we did in early December before Omicron really came on the scene, we had 6% growth in Q1 of this year. No, excuse me, 5% growth in Q1 of this year, a little over 5%. And now we're down to just about two. So we've shaved three percentage points off of GDP growth in Q1. But we've added that back in in Q2. So we're assuming that Omicron is a very intense wave. It's going to do a heck of a lot of damage in January. We talked about potential decline in employment in January, but that's going to come off very quickly. That's kind of sort of what we've seen in in, uh, South Africa, for example. Hopefully we see that in Europe pretty soon, and we tend to follow Europe in terms of infections by a few weeks. And then by March, certainly going into Q2, infections are back down and the economy revs right back up. On the supply, so it, it's changing the path, the, the pattern, the quarter of the pattern, but not the annual growth rates to any meaningful degree. On the supply chains, I am assuming Omicron is going to slow down improvements in supply chain dynamics, but it won't short circuit them because I'm, I, you know, I think. Uh, I'm assuming that uh, the disruptions in Asia are less severe, much less severe than they were with Delta, in part because they're much more vaccinated. If you go like to Malaysia, I go to Malaysia because Malaysia shut down all its chip plants, which, you know, cratered all the vehicle manufacturing in this country and caused vehicle prices to go skyward. And that's, as I said earlier, a big part of the increase in inflation. Uh, Malaysia is now, I think, 80 percent vaccinated. It was like 15% 15% vaccinated before Delta. And I think they're going to have a very, very different kind of COVID policy. They're not going to shut down factories like they did, at least not to the same degree that they did in Delta. And I also think that American companies, U.S. companies are getting better at kind of identifying bottlenecks in the supply chain and managing around those bottlenecks. Uh, so uh, I do think supply chain issues will become less pronounced. Not quickly, I, you know, I think in the first half of this year, most of the moderation in inflation hopefully is around energy prices. By the second half of this year, I think that's where we get the, you know, the big improvements in inflation. And that will be largely around, you know, much better uh, supply chain dynamics and, and labor markets. So that's really, really 
uh, when I expect uh, you know to see the most of the improvement in the second half of 2022 on inflation. I know I covered a lot of ground there. Any, uh, I, I think I answered the question, right? You did. You did. I, did. I think okay. you also, there were a, a number of questions about um, labor, labor market itself, and the long ter longer term uh, participation. So I think you touched on that as well. I think there was a, perhaps um, a question about the boomers and the early retirement. Do you expect them to come back in or? Is that going to impact the participation rate at all, or is it really that? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm a boomer, but I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. So what do you think I am going to do, Chris? What do you think? Oh, you're sticking around. You never, oh, yeah. you never exited. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, maybe I'm a little weird. You know, it's hard to shove me out. Yeah. So what, what, do you ha what do you think happens? Well, what has happened with the boomers during the pandemic, and what do you think is going to happen going forward? Yeah, so early retirements are up. You can see that um, from survey data, a number of uh, uh, folks in the 55 plus category have uh, indicated that they're not looking for a job and they're not interested in looking uh, for a job, uh, right? So um, they're indicating that they're out. Uh, and I think uh, uh, the majority of them actually will stay out because of house prices, asset uh, values have gone up, stock portfolios are performing, so they can't afford to retire early. But I, I do... I think that there's a segment that uh, will come back in at least part-time, uh, whether that's because of you know, uh, preference or choice, right? You get bored at home, you want to work, but then there is certainly a segment that um, will need to come back in at least part-time to supplement incomes or, you know, inevitably things happen. So I, I don't count on that group uh, providing a whole lot of additional uh, labor. So from my perspective, these uh, labor supply issues are going to persist uh, for quite a while because immigration, although it comes back up, it's not going to come back up uh, very rapidly. And the generations are, are smaller, right, after the uh, millennials. So it's going to get less and less labor supply uh, coming forward. So I think this imbalance is going to persist for a while. Uh, Ryan, Ryan, any, uh, any perspectives on that, that point around boomers and retirement and no, I would agree with Chris. I mean, I think the other thing is uh, with boomers doing early retirement, I'm wondering if you know that's generating a little bit of the increase in entrepreneurship that we've seen. So if you look at, you know, uh, you know maybe people are starting their own companies, uh, you know, the employment identification number data, which tracks new businesses, it's been really, really strong since the pandemic began. So I'm wondering, you know, if some of the, the boomers left because they could and now are, you know, starting their own businesses. Right, right. Uh, well, just to give people a sense of the numbers, so we uh, we have participation rising, settling in between sixty two point five and sixty three percent, but that's still well below the pre pandemic peak in participation, which was you know roughly speaking sixty three and a half percent, you know somewhere in that order of magnitude, maybe a little a tenth or two below that. So that half point difference, a little more than half point. That is largely retirees. Those are the folks that, you know, would have, they, some, we would have seen, even without the pandemic, participation would have declined over this period because of increased uh, retirement by boomers. But that was all accelerated and pulled forward. And so it contributes to about a half point, a little over a half point decline in participation, uh, you know, here going forward. Hey, Ryan, let me, since we're on this subject, because I know there's, you, you, you tend to have these statistics that you just don't like. You think they're misleading. I mentioned the yield curve. <laughs> the yield curve. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty high up there. 
tell us, you know, in, when people think about full employment, what full employment means, you know, they think about it in the context of unemployment rate, in, mm -hmm. which we kind of think would be in the mid threes for full employment. They think about the participation rate, but you think about something else, the employment. Yeah, I ignore the participation rate. Yeah. Do you want uh, to explain that and what that is, what it is and, you know, what where it is now and what the benchmarks are for full employment? Yeah. So my, my benchmark is the prime age. So these are people 25 to 54. So it's the prime age employment to population ratio. And right now we're at 79%. And at least historically, when the economy has been at full employment, we're right around 80%, maybe a little bit higher. So if the recent trend continues, we'll be, you know, by that metric at full employment by the end of the year. Yeah. So the, the, uh, it's the employment to population ratio for workers that are 25 to 54. Correct. That's just the, their employment divided by their population. Correct. That incorporates unemployment and participation kind of all in one. Mm -hmm. And it's sitting at 79% today, which is up a lot from the bottom. If you go back when the teeth of the pandemic in early 2020 was, what was it? It was like close to 70%, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was very low. It was low. Uh, and, and now it's 79. And you're saying once we get to 80, if you look at history and look at past previous business cycles, at least over the last three, four business cycles, once the economy has EPOP over 80, that's pretty consistent. It feels like a full employment economy, Correct. wages and everything else. And, mm -hmm. and so we're still not quite there yet, but if everything kind of hangs together, we will be there by the end of the year, which is what, what we're saying. Right. So, I mean, even though the participation, the labor force participation rate will fully recover from the pandemic because of the, the demographic issues you laid out, prime age employment to population ratio will get back to where it was pre-pandemic, if not higher. So, you know, that's just a sign that, you know, the labor supply issues, I mean, they're going to be there, but they're, they're not as binding as I think some people are making it out to be. Yeah, got it. Okay. All right. Uh, next question, Chris or Ryan? Chris, you got one? Uh, there are several questions about inflation, as you, as you can imagine. So maybe sure. um, maybe combine a couple of these. One is that just okay. asking for additional uh, color on today's uh, CPI report. Then uh, one I... That, I'll connect it to inflation, certainly has inflation, inflation um, uh, implications is around agriculture and what we think about uh, uh, input, the, the input costs, reliance on exports, uh, the weather and how, so the, the question I'll forma, formulate out of that is how, what, are, what are we thinking about commodities, commodities in general, agricultural commodities, and then you certainly broaden that out as, in the context of inflation. Yeah, oh, Chris, I thought you're going to bring in the. I thought you're going to bring in the cobweb model. I'm going to bring that. Uh, definitely yeah. going to bring in the cobweb model. See, that's yeah, why Chris yeah. went right, right to ag. <laughs> that's why I went to. The, yeah, I knew it. But maybe you can comment on the CPI report first, uh, if you have any. Yeah, that's a good idea. Thoughts? Go ahead, Ryan. That, that's your uh, uh, your uh, expertise. Far away. Yeah, so it wasn't that surprising. It was up five tenths uh, between November and December. Uh, energy was a slight drag after boosting. Uh, the CPI in you know, the past several months. But again, you go back to the supply constraint components. So if you look at new and used vehicle prices, you know, that was the lion's share of the, the increase in the CPI. So if you exclude just used car prices, the CPI was up only three tenths. Uh, and then you laid out earlier, looking at it year over year, we're at 7%, but you take out energy, take out these supply constrained components, you know, we're, we're down closer to you know, two and a half or 3%. So uh, I think the one area that I'm, I'm really focused in on the next several months is rents. Mm. So owner's equivalent rent, if you look at yeah. tenant's rents, 
they're, they're pretty sticky and they were up four tenths of a percentage point between November and December, uh, which is identical to what it was in you know, the past couple of months. That's going to change. That's going to really pick up uh, probably this summer. We'll see. That's when rental inflation will, will be at its peak. Do you know why there's such a lag between the rents observed in the marketplace? You know, if I go look at, you know, there's data that looks at a, a current rent growth and it's 10%, 12%, 15%, depending on which measure you're, you're using. But that takes a while to show up in the Bureau of Labor Statistics measure of rents in the CPI, Consumer Price Index. Why, why do we have that lag? I think Chris, he explained his best. Isn't it something with reporting? Chris, go ahead. I, I thought you knew the knew right off the top of your head. Yeah, well, my my assumption, and maybe I need to confirm this, is that it has to do with the um, just the contracts, right? That the rents, you know, they're longer term contracts, twelve months, so it takes time uh, for those contracts to renew. So uh, when we are looking at uh, new rents and seeing, oh, it's ten percent, twenty percent up in the last year, that's on the new contracts, but then majority of the rental contracts still outstanding are based on the old rate, right? So you're kind of blending it. So that's why over time, those those uh, lease agreements get renewed and, and they will catch up. Um, but that's my understanding for the lag. And on the owner's equivalent rent, my understanding there is that it's uh, that is survey based. So it's, it's really the owners indicating how much they think they could rent their place out for. And that too may not be a, a an accurate measure of um, of the current market from the owner's perspective, an owner is living in their home. They're not renting it. They might not have a, a great idea of what market rates are at the time. So that also could uh, be a bit lagged until they catch up on the news, if you will, in terms of what uh, equivalent properties are renting for. Mm -hmm. So that, that's my understanding, but. Yeah, um, I think that's right. So Well, it makes sense because like some of the, the, the alternative rent data, it leads the CPI component by roughly 12, 18 months. So that's why we kind of know when the peak is going to happen. It's going to happen later this year in the summer. Uh, so I, I buy into your, your argument. Yeah, I mean, the rent of shelter. So if I'm renting my home, uh, what we're observing is the uh, folks that are moving into their uh, the, the apartment or getting renewed. And so it's the rest of the stock of homes that still hasn't that hasn't changed yet. So it takes time for that to happen, you know, to get into the data. And then for folks that are own their own home, and of course the CPI for uh, homeowners equivalent that's 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 a rent, rental measure that's based on surveys, and that takes time for that survey to be conducted and for that and people's views of of their uh, implicit rent to rise. I mean, you think about it, you know, they said last year it was 3%. They're not going to immediately say 6%, right? It takes time for that to happen in people's thinking. So it takes time for it to bleed, so-called bleed into the, you know, the measures of CPI, but that's going to happen. So that's a, you know, very significant. What about commodity prices? Chris, did you want to talk about cobweb, the cobweb model or, uh, and, and just commodity prices in general? We could. Do we have time? Or yeah, we do. We're, go we're going to eleven fifty. We're going to uh, we we. I uh, negotiated with the powers that be, and we got this uh, to twelve fifteen. So we got okay. an hour and fifteen. So we got fifteen more minutes to to um, to uh, chat here. So do you want to talk about commodity prices and the, and how do you think about it? And I, I think the cobweb model will come up in this in this description. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So uh, I think so. The question about uh, agricultural price, I think that's uh, highly re relevant in the broader 
uh, inflation discussion as well, right? We, we talk about the, the income measures at a very high level, but I thought Ryan had some interesting data in terms of, you know, the, the that 7% number is based on this generic kind of economy-wide uh, basket of goods, but, you know, different people buy different uh, items. So he had some interesting data about uh, the impact of this type of an increase in inflation overall on different demographic groups. I don't know, Ryan, if you wanted to share some of that info, because I think that mm-hmm. feeds into the fact that, you know, some Everyone has to buy food, of course, but that's going to be a larger share of the lower income households basket of goods, if you will, than the higher income uh, households. Yeah. So overall, uh, at 7% increase in inflation, you know, the counterfactual will be you know, 2% inflation, which is roughly the average that we got in 28, 2019. That differential costs the uh, average household $250 per month. And then uh, Chris and I looked at it across age, uh, and uh, not surprisingly, those 35 to 44 is costing them $300 uh, a month and change, and then it's 45 to 54 is $306 so per month. So uh, younger households, those under 25, it's costing them $155 per month. Interesting. Yeah. So that, and then the over 65, I, I thought it was uh, 194. So it's a lower amount, right? So they're they're consuming perhaps more medical care, which actually didn't see much of an increase in the uh, in the inflation uh, statistics, right? So yeah, I, I would I would ignore that basket. Yeah. No, okay, There's, no, <laughs> fair I, enough. It seems like I'm saying ignore everything, but uh, that uh, the medical care component of the CPI, uh, the response rate. So what percent of you know, the surveys getting responded to has been falling for years, and it's very very low. So I don't know how reliable that data really is. So, okay, so you but, didn't you, you didn't talk about commodity prices in, in cobweb. Do you want me to do that? You, oh, right, okay. Yeah, we can you go. Want to do it? Go ahead. We can go in that direction. So, it, okay. So the, the hook there is food, right? Talking about yeah. agriculture and all prices. Certainly, we've seen commodity prices rising along with everything else, as you mentioned. Right? You focus on asset prices, but commodities have been rising as well right. for a variety of reasons. Which is an asset too, right? I mean, yeah. Some, yeah right. Go yeah, ahead. Sure. Uh, what's unique about agriculture, of course, is that there are these growing cycles, right? So there's this cobweb model, which uh, takes your standard supply demand curve and introduces some lagged effects, right? So how do farmers or ranchers or other uh, agricultural commodity producers respond uh, to the prices that they're seeing? Well, they're going to adjust their, their planting decisions or their growing decisions, and that comes with a lag, right? So the... Um, that as that demand curve shifts, the supply uh, uh, curve will, will shift as well, shift out as the, um, as farmers respond to those higher prices. But because there's a lag in the time between you plant and you you reap, right? Uh, there's a coordination problem, right? So if all the farmers suddenly see that coffee prices are way up and they start to plant their fields with coffee, um, by the time they actually go to market, they could see that the prices actually fall because now there's oversupply uh, effect going on. So uh, a concern here, I guess, is that uh, with the higher commodity prices that we've seen, we might actually see a flood of additional um, supply coming on the market. And then in, in turn, the farmers will respond again, maybe cut back on their on their production, move to other uh, crops, right? So you'll see that cobweb uh, spinning around until we actually hit the equilibrium. By the uh, way, I, I think, think that, that kind of dynamic, that cobweb kind of dynamic plays out in lots of markets, right? I mean, absolutely. chip markets and 
uh, because that, you know, if you go back to our chart of the inflation outlook, we had inflation dipping below uh, target, and that goes to actual. I expect that prices for goods stuff is actually going to be declining, deflation in that period, in part because demand's going to weaken as the pandemic recedes. People go back to buying services, less goods, but also because businesses are going to respond to the currently high prices and all the money they're making by increasing capacity. So we're going to have a yep. lot more chips, you know, 18 months from now, right? And we're going to have a lot more lumber, 18 months. Sawmills are going to be, are being, uh, uh, the industry's investing in sawmills, so we're going to have a lot more lumber. Same kind of copper, you know, we'll get a lot more copper because we're investing in copper. So uh, that's why we could actually see, you know, it feels like a bit of a stretch at this point, given how high inflation is, but we could actually see some deflation maybe not 12 months from now, but 18 to 24 months as this capacity comes on. And that's the, that's the cobweb model uh, at work, you know, that, di that dynamic. So I think that's, you know, very, very important to understand. Now, I will say in terms of commodities, every commodity has its own idiosyncratic demand supply stuff going on. But I will say broadly, there, there's a lot of cross currents in terms of commodity prices, you know, and where they're headed up or down. On the, on the upside, you know, particularly if you think about agricultural products, you got weather events, right? You got climate risk. You know, one reason why lumber prices are as high as they are is because British Columbia got inundated with, I don't know what they call that, the atmospheric river or something that completely cratered shipments of lumber from Canada into the United States and caused, helped cause lumber prices to rise. Same kind of dynamic, a lot of, you know, we have weather events and that affects supply. But on the demand side, we've got China whose economy growing much more slowly and, you know, has a, a lot of issues and probably going to grow slower going forward. And they're, of course, the, the marginal consumer of a lot of these commodities. So if they're consuming less, that means downward pressure on commodity prices. So I think you've got a lot of, you know, cross currents here and it depends on which market, which product that you're looking at, because, you know, it's very idiosyncratic. But that cobweb model that, that you, you described that very, is better than I've ever heard a professor give that description of that cobweb model. And I've heard that description many times in my day, uh, you know, is a very uh, apropos way of thinking about uh, things like commodity prices. That's why anyway. I'm worried about 2023. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, uh, exactly. The inventory, because okay. businesses right now are, are double booking, triple ordering. So we're going to get a huge inventory build this year, which sets us up for a hangover in 2023. Oh, just adding to your boom bust cycle, you mm -hmm. know, oh, no, you're making Con me trying to connect all the dots, Mark. I know you're doing a good job. All right. Any, uh, any other questions, Chris, any mm -hmm. other, anything coming from the audience? I, I see a few more in the queue. Uh, Ryan, do you want to, I'm, you want I had to a good one. Well, we talked about supply chains. Oh, here's one. You talked about, uh, working from home being a permanent, uh, uh, you know, last long lasting effect of the pandemic. Yep. What are your thoughts on tourism, hotels, and airlines? When do they get back to pre pandemic levels? Well, uh, in, in terms of uh, tourism, you know, obviously it's very pandemic dependent. I mean, I see I, the way I would think about it is domestic tourism will normalize much more quickly. In fact, it felt like it was getting pretty close before we got creamed by Delta and then Omicron. And if you go look at, you know, number of people going through TSA uh, checkpoints, that was getting back pretty close to 2019 levels, 
which would be, you know, consistent with domestic tourism, you know, recovering. Uh, That, you know, obviously, though, has been sidetracked by Omicron. And, you know, uh, it's not until people aren't fearful of getting sick, you know, that that will normalize. But we're well on our way there. With regard to foreign tourism, that'll take longer. You know, uh, I think that'll lag at least about a year for domestic tourism because it's going to take a while for governments to let the guard down and borders open and, you know, let people in and for people to feel confident about going to another country and feel like they can get back without getting stuck. I mean, I've, there's, I have a lot of exam- personal examples of people, you know, that are, had, had gone away for Christmas, the holidays, and got stuck in, literally got stuck in Mexico because they tested positive for COVID. And that was a nightmare. So I think that that's, a, that's not going to be, it's going to take a while to forget about all that. But then business travel, I don't, I don't see that coming back at all. Uh, that's going to be a long time coming back. Um, you, you know, I think uh, the Zoom technology that we're using now is very effective for a lot of business travel, particularly internal meetings. Like, you know, again, just it's all about me. You know, I would travel to our offices in different parts of the world to see our economists. Uh, I feel no need or very reduced need to do that now, right? Because we're on Zoom calls with them all day long. And it's a little bit of a hassle if they're sitting in, you know, Singapore. It's a bigger hassle if they're sitting in Sydney. It's not a hassle at all if they're sitting in Prague or London. It's no big deal. So I don't feel the same, you know, uh, need. There'll there'll be, you know, conferences and events and people will start going back to that, particularly in nice spots. But I think it's going to take a while. And I don't think we're getting back to where we were for a long, long time. So that is all, you know, that has all kinds of implications for, for, for the hotel industry. Of course, it depends on what kind of hotel you are and who you're catering to and, you know, what city you're in, but, you know, uh, rental cars, airlines, you know, uh, very significant uh, implications for the travel industry. So I think that's domestic tourism first, you know, it depends on the pandemic. I'd say by next year, global tourism after that, probably 20, 24 business travel, you know, uh, not in my working lifetime. I don't think, I don't know. What do you guys think? Any, any disagreement with that kind of timeline? No. Okay. I think you're right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think we have time for one more question. If there is a question out there, uh, if not, I, I have a question for you because, uh, I think it would be, should I ask my question or is there a good question from the audience? We have a lot of good questions. But. Yeah. We have a lot of good questions? Okay. Yeah, we have a lot of good ones. Well, no, we, should do, I, I mean, we can do I, yours. I my question is good. Well, let's do yours. Let's, we'll do yours because we're going to get back to everybody. We'll respond. We'll answer all the questions that we didn't tackle. Okay. Okay. Here's my question. What should we be optimistic about? You know, what is the one thing you would identify as a reason for optimism? I said there's upside risk, downside risk. We did nothing but talk about downside risk. What is the upside risk here? So, We'll each take a crack at it. Ryan, you first, then Chris, then I'll go. Oh, you got to throw me. Uh, I'll go. Okay, Chris, you go first. All right, Chris. I I would say adaptation. I think we tend to underestimate the power of people to adjust to their circumstances, right? You can see that with the pandemic itself, right? Omicron is far worse than the earlier waves of the pandemic, and yet people are adjusting, uh, businesses are adjusting and the economic impact, at least, is not uh, nearly as as severe, and I think that's going to play out in all the 
other areas we mentioned. So labor force participation is low or won't, uh, won't recover as quickly as we might like it to. Uh, we'll see more automation or outsourcing, right? The businesses will figure out how to, uh, how to manage this environment and still turn a profit. That's a good one. I should have gone first. I call that a meta, a meta positive, right? I mean, our ability to adjust and that manifests in lots of different ways. The beauty of the, of the capitalist system the American version of the capitalist system, we, we, you know, I think that's the nation's comparative advantage, actually. We adjust, uh, you know, to changing economic conditions. And clearly the pandemic has been a doozy of an adjust, created a doozy of an adjustment, but you know, we've, we've done a pretty good job there. Uh, Ryan, is there anything you wanted to, any upside risk you wanted to point to? So I'll focus on the next one to two years. And I think uh -huh. that there's a big question mark around excess savings. So the additional amount of savings that households are sitting on relative to pre-pandemic saving patterns, uh, it's at $2.5, $2.6 trillion. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think in the baseline forecast, we assume a third of that is spent yeah. over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, more of that could go flying out into the economy and you could see very strong consumer spending as people start to release pent-up demand for consumer services. So I think that's something to watch. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, that's a pretty difficult, that's a tough one, right, to gauge uh, what consumer behavior is going to be and how that's going to play Correct. out. But there's a lot of excess saving. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, you know, I think there's reason to be optimistic around the uh, innovation and investment that businesses are making. You mentioned business formation. Just to flesh that out, if, you know, we have very good data from the Internal Revenue Service, IRS, on EIN numbers. These are employer identification numbers. And so if you start a company, you need to file, uh, get an EIN so you can pay payroll tax and pay your taxes. And so that's a very good measure of the number of businesses that are forming. And that has gone skyward. And that's across, I think, almost every industry and across all regions of the country, it varies by industry and it varies by region. But you know, generally speaking, it, it's up and it's up a lot. And that goes to investment. I think businesses, and this goes to your point about adaptation. They're they're not sitting still. They're making a, a lot of money. Cost of capital is very low. Credit is available. You can get no problem getting a loan. Which, by the way, is another reason for optimism. The financial system is on very solid on footing, thanks to all the changes that occurred after the financial crisis. So credit is flowing. And they're investing. They're investing in, you know, uh, if I can't find workers, I'm going to invest in labor-saving technology. If I my supply chains are not are a mess, I'm going to invest in supply chain resilience. And that's what we're saying. And I think, you know, it takes a, a bit of time for that to get up to speed. But you can kind of feel it if you look at the productivity numbers. They're improving. They're, they're starting to improve. Even on a long-run secular basis, it feels like they're starting to rise, which is another reason to be a little less concerned about the wage growth that we're observing because we're having a higher productivity growth, which assesses the impact of that. So I think uh, you know, there's good reasons to be optimistic here. Uh, you know, we just need to get to the other side of this, this, this pandemic that we're in, and hopefully that happens to script. And if we do, I think we'll be feel much better about things a year from now. Clearly, that's, uh, you know, uh, the baseline is a relatively optimistic sanguine economic outlook. So with that, a bit of optimism. I thought we should end on a high note. I think that's, you know, only It's fair. typical. You always find a way to end on a, bad, on a yeah, positive we, note. We got to. We have to. Yep. Uh, well, you know, that, that's, um, that's, that's critical. Um, I think we're going to call this a webinar, a podcast. And here I'm going to introduce a new word, listener, podinar. Pod and R. So that's a webinar couched as a podcast. Pod and R. 
So we're going to trademark that, I think. Uh, at least Sarah's going to trademark that. So with that, thank you for attending. We will get back to all the, que- to all the questions and respond in writing to those questions. But thank you for your attendance. Uh, have a good rest of the day and uh, talk to you soon. Take care. Mm-hmm.